Welcome to Cultural Controversy with Shannon Fisher, where we tackle everything from the fabulous to the forbidden. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cultural Controversy. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. I am welcoming back Dr. Elijah Anderson, the Sterling Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Yale University, 2021 winner of the Stockholm Prize in Criminology. And I originally sought out his work after witnessing urban poverty like I'd never seen in the Germantown area in Philadelphia when I was covering the 2016 Democratic National Convention. His research really enlightened me about the historical contributing factors to modern urban poverty. His new book examines the topic, and I'm excited to share it with you. The book is called Black in White Space, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life. The author is Dr. Elijah Anderson. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So this this book is about black and white people moving through spaces that are typically inhabited by the other race. And so as we're getting started, can you define white space and black space for listeners so they kind of understand the overarching theme of, of your work? Well, this goes way back in history, of course. Slavery was the original place where the plantation was, essentially black space. And the and the master's quarters sure. were, in a sense, white space. And, uh, and nothing was more powerful than slavery in establishing the black body's place at the bottom of the order. I mean, Justice Taney said in 1857 um, that black people have no rights, that white people are bound to respect. I mean, the argument had to do with the Dred Scott decision and the extension of slavery in new, into new territories. But he made a comment about uh, the state of race relations and the place of black people, you know, in that in that system. Of course, we had the Civil War and then emancipation and the migration of black people to uh, cities and towns of the south and the north and all that. And of course, there were sundown towns and black people had to be out by sundown or or uh, be harassed by uh, by white people. And. Uh, black people oftentimes settled on the outskirts of these of these uh, places and worked in the city, in the town during the day, but then they had to go back to the shanty towns on the outskirts of town in these communities. And so this was sure. the precursor, really, of the, of the ghetto or the black space in people's minds, the place where the black folk lived. And so um, in order to navigate these uh, other spaces, black people had to be wary. Um, of, uh, of of their white counterparts and had to kind of manage themselves in these white spaces. And this is historic. The interesting thing is that many, many uh, white people uh, during slavery and afterwards became uh, deeply invested in the lowly place of black people. And this attitude became institutionalized, that is passed on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Until today, this relationship is manifested in the uh, ghettos of North Philadelphia, uh, in ghettos of the south side of Chicago, Dixwell and New Haven, various places where the black right. folk live, so to speak. So this is the um, history of the black, the black space. And of course, the white space is a perceptual category. Uh, you know, the, the people kind of know what that is, place that it's inhabited and controlled by white people in the minds of black people. So as they navigate these spaces, historically, they have to be wary because they were not always welcome in these spaces 
And when they were there, they had to be very careful. And in your book, you write, um, ordinary people often approach an anonymous black male with some unease and that in their quest for decent treatment from members of the wider society, that black people kind of feel like they have to constantly manage their identities and adjust their self-presentation against the stereotype of what you call the iconic Negro. And and so you talk about just a an overarching sense of discomfort that Black people are feeling as they are navigating these, these predominantly white spaces. So tell me a little bit about that stereotype and that fight. Well, Black people know that there are decent white people you know, they know that. Sure. Uh, and they know that, that, that there are people who, who, who get along with them, who have respect for them and that kind of thing. They also know that there are white people who hate them and who basically want them gone from white spaces. Yeah. The problem for the black person as he or she navigates the, um, the white space is, is to tell which, which is which and then to and then to um, um, deal with it as best one can to manage oneself uh, in, in these spaces. And so um, it's, it's a complicated uh, situation. But as black people navigate white space, they have to work to disabuse people of the notion that they're bad people, that they're um, not to be trusted, that they're competent people, that kind of thing. Because the stereotypes about the ghetto and the people who are presumably from there, is that these are outsiders, you see, and this is the challenge that black people face every day. And while it was clear during slavery and afterwards, it's, 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 it's a situation that has not left us. It's still, to some extent, this problem. Though we've made great progress over the years. We've had, uh, of course, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, and we've had uh, what I describe in the book, as the racial incorporation process through affirmative action, set aside, what have you, we've created the largest black middle class in American history. And so much social legislation was enacted, you know, during the 60s uh, that really uh, extended full citizenship to black people, so to speak, voting rights and, and various uh, employment practices were considered to be um, problematic if they discriminated against black people and all. And so there was a concerted effort on the part of the politicians to make life better for black people. And this has resulted in the largest black middle class in American history. So we've made great progress as a, as a country, but we've got so far to go, I feel. Definitely. And you, you talk about how the judgment factors that have to be navigated are kind of tests. Black people feel they have to pass to move freely in white spaces. And as you just said, they're also navigating, trying to ascertain which white people mean them no harm and, and, and which white people might be best avoided at all cost. From a a personal perspective. I mean, you talk about that you, you've been jogging and that you actually had someone pull over in it while you were jogging and tell you to go home. You're you're treated differently sometimes depending on the the logo that's on the hoodie that you're wearing when you are jogging and just having to having to navigate spaces and constantly judge and be judged. It must be exhausting. Well, it is it is exhausting, but black people they make their way. And they do what they can do um, to survive and to excel. And as I say, um, 
today and we have the largest black middle class in American history. And because of this incorporation process, uh, black people are increasingly normalized in white spaces. And so mm-hmm. I think we're making progress, but we have so far to go. We have progress and then setbacks, progress and setbacks. In fact, uh, when we have black su- success, especially when it's a prominent success, oftentimes there's a white backlash. There's a white backlash. And this happens incrementally. It happens directly sometimes. But in face of all of that, we're, we're making progress, I feel. Absolutely. And, and, and you talk about as everyone is, is navigating the world, that, that there is kind of a little bit of an identity crisis in a lot of middle class, upper class black people in that they don't feel like they want to turn their back on, quote, the hood, um, that, they, that they don't want to feel like they've uh, abandoned that part of black history, black culture. And you talk about a phenomenon called code switching, which, which we talked about when you came on the show before. But for listeners who are unaware of that, can you kind of describe what code switching is and, and how it applies to, to modern life? This uh, issue of code switching that you alluded to is really uh, quite normal for for human beings, regardless of what race they are. I think we all, to some extent, code switch in order to get along with the people that we are dealing with. And so it's almost like the uh, people you're dealing with um, requires a set of interactions, uh, uh, even uh, even a cultural language that you learn to deal with that situation. And I think human beings uh, naturally uh, code switch. In the racial situation, it's, uh, it's a little different because basically there's so much uh, associated with uh, behavior and uh, whether or not this behavior supports stereotypes or not, that kind of thing. And right. so uh, in order to deal with this, people have ways of coping, ways of dealing, ways of getting through the world, you know, that may seem markedly different from one in, in one situation or another. I mean, one of the most important findings of my new work is that when a black person uh, enters or navigates what they see as white space, um, and again, this is a perceptual category that does exist. I mean, they're burdened with this negative presumption that mm-hmm. they have to prove or neutralize before they can build trusting relations with other people in that in that white space. And, and this is significant because this is done in a matter of moments. This, this, this presumption is visited uh, on, on black people in a matter of moments. And then he has to, she has to deal with that, you see. And, right. and, and this kind of discrimination um, is uh, implicated in, 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 in racial disparities, in uh, police contact, uh, incarceration, mm-hmm. um, health care, um, and um, random insults in public places. It's really kind of heartbreaking that in this day and age, despite all of the progress that we've made socially and politically, um, that that this is still such a, a minefield, really, um, for Black people to navigate as they're just going about their daily lives. Well, I mean, uh, the thing of it is, the um, the ghetto still exists. 
you see, as this bastion of inequality. And not only does it exist, but the, 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 the black community is no longer simply a physical space. It's become an icon, a symbol, an image uh, that, that hovers over black people as they make their way in civil society. And given the stereotypes, uh, a lot of people see the ghetto as this den of iniquity. But uh, I'm here to say that, uh, and this is coming from years and years of field work uh, in the hood, so to speak, uh, most people um, I encountered in the hood uh, are decent and trying to be decent. And this is very important to appreciate. I mean, there are legions, legions of hardworking, decent uh, people in the black community, you see. But the stereotype dismisses all that. And the, the street element, um, to some extent, uh, people who are really distressed in these communities, uh, their images sometimes overshadow the decent people, you see. And, 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 and the wider society oftentimes abdicates any responsibility to these communities. This is an, an updated book on research that you've done throughout your career, and it, and it's it, it it it's put together with mentions of of relatively recent political phenomenon, something that we've dealt with a, a, a lot, and thankfully has gotten a lot of media attention is police brutality and kind of the antagonistic relationship that the, the black community has with law enforcement. So. Um, Tell me a little bit about that as it relates to black and white space. Well, I think um, it's important to revisit this notion of the iconic ghetto, because this is this is very, very, very important. And this is one of the findings of, of, of my of my work. I mean, the the icon, um, as I say, the, the ghetto is no longer just a physical space. Uh, in the public mind, it, it's become this icon, this notion of where the black people live, this den of iniquity. And that, that achieves a kind of a master status kind of thing that supersedes whatever else a black person might, might be about. So you can be a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, a, a businessman, a, a minister, somebody who's decent uh, in every way, you know. Mm -hmm. But because people have this stereotype about the hood and how, how, how negative that place is, that place um, sometimes supersedes um, um, whatever else you might try to claim to be. And as I say, if you visit the hood, you see that uh, there are legions of decent, law-abiding, hardworking individuals. It's like Little House on the Prairie that you see in many of these communities. Of course, this is overshadowed by uh, people of the a criminal element, and oftentimes these are people who are victims of the the distress that is visited upon these uh, these communities, as it were. Yeah. And I think um, people uh, have to deal with this, as I point out in my book, Code of the Street. Um, you know, you have the, the decent people, and I say most of the people are decent and trying to be decent, but there's also a street element. You know, basically people who are who are so distressed by the environment and they do everything they can to survive. And of course, the decent people oftentimes get drawn in and, and to this uh, scenario and, and, and they are under pressure in these communities. They're trying to be decent uh, 
whatever, and they know that the police have abdicated responsibility to the community, so they feel sometimes that they're on their own. So when they call the police, the police may not come on time. The police might come late. The police might come when the whole situation is over. And so this puts the onus on the on the person in the community, isolated as it is, to deal with things himself or herself. And in order to survive in some of these communities that are, to some extent, um, uh, abandoned by the wider society, people feel they're on their own. And mm-hmm. so be their own police force, their own, um, uh, you know, take care of their own um, mother, father, brother, sister, in terms of violence and robbery and crime and what have you. And in order to do that and to succeed in the community, as I point out in the book, street credibility becomes very important. And street cred is high maintenance. It's the notion that if somebody messes with you, somebody messes with your friends, somebody messes with your mother, somebody messes with your dad, uh, they have you to answer to, not the police, because sure. you don't trust the police. And right. so you have to promise in the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you move, that there'll be retributive violence and that kind of thing, you see. And this comes from some of the most decent people in the community. But they have to have street cred in order to get along in some of the most distressed areas, you see. And the people on the outside uh, have difficulty distinguishing uh, between and among people who live in the community. As I say, most people are decent and trying to be decent. But people of the wider society oftentimes stereotype and lump everybody together, you see. Mm-hmm. And so this makes it, makes it difficult. But as you navigate white space, um, you know, basically you, you, you run into these issues where people just assume that you're from the hood and they've got this blanket notion about the, the hood. And this is what I talk about with respect to the iconic ghetto, so to speak, this yes. image, this symbol, this um, aura that, that kind of sort of hovers over black people as they make their way in this uh, larger society, as it were. And this gives them almost automatically, as I point out in the book, in the minds of uh, the people who stereotype, I mean, it gives them this deficit of credibility that they have to work to offset, which is uh, exhaustive, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, and you also talk in, in the book about how that translates in one way to provide access to white spaces, and that's via the entertainment industry. That that's just such a, a paradox in, in that if 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 you are presenting in a white space in a way that feels threatening, you know, that is reminiscent of the ghetto, which is often only in the mind of the white person who is perceiving, because as you said, it is the iconic ghetto, and it, and it's. Unfortunately, people just ascribe the ghetto to every dark-skinned person that they see, unless that person is rich, famous in the entertainment industry, um, in in which case it gives them access to um, spaces that they uh, otherwise might be shunned from. So tell me a little bit more about that paradox. Well, it is a a paradox, and uh, I think that uh, uh, as people navigate these spaces, they have to disabuse people of the notion that these stereotypes apply to him or her personally, if you will. And this is work. 
this is work and it's exhaustive. And I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, black people um, tend to um, avoid white space when they can, but they have to go through white space because that's where the, the, the some of the most important benefits of the larger society uh, are anchored, are present, you see. Education, right. um, night out on, you know, um, uh, on the town or whatever it is, or all of these are in spaces that are not the ghetto, so to speak. Sure, these sure. Fine. Are, you you talk about dining in in the book. I mean, a, a, a simple act of going to a restaurant. Sure, sure. These are these are these are predominantly white spaces, in which black people have to deal with, oftentimes, this deficit of credibility. You see, and and, and people know, and they 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 deal with it as best they can, but it's no fun. You see. It, it seems that education and mutual understanding uh, uh, across all all races is obviously the answer, but we as a society seem to be increasingly lacking in human empathy. So the onus should be on all of us to rectify the social divide, but nobody seems to care that much about other anymore, the capital O, other. Um, what can we all do to help make it easier for us all to navigate a society that is diverse. Well, I think that uh, again, I I don't want to uh, be totally negative about everything because basically we're we're making tremendous progress for sure. Sure. Yes. And in many in many of these situations, you do see um, black people and white people and other kinds of people getting on together. We live in a pluralistic society where you have all different kinds of people in this country. And we um, we are essentially, you know, getting along. There are these hiccups, there are these problems, you know, that have to do with our history that we're still right. trying to deal with. But but as you look at the, um, the um, for example, sports teams, I mean, you, you alluded to that before. But it's amazing how much uh, powerful athlete uh, like LeBron James uh, or uh, Allen Iverson or any number of other uh, first class athletes. It's amazing what kind of following they have among not only black people, but white people and Asian people or Latinos and others, you know, that kind of thing. It's amazing right. how the language of sports can can break down these racial barriers, if you, if you will. And this is true. And you see people uh, who um, can identify and see people as human beings. And these people are great ambassadors, if you will, um, you know, for, 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 for race uh, uh, relations, if you will. Uh, and it's complicated, I know, but and we do have a lot of issues, but we also have, you know, some strengths here. And I wanna just make sure that people appreciate that. Oh, definitely. I published a book entitled The Cosmopolitan Canopy. And this is uh, an island of racial civility uh, located in the sea of segregated living. And um, I studied Philadelphia, Rittenhouse Square, the Reading Terminal Market, Center City itself. And this, for all intents and purposes, uh, fits the bill as a cosmopolitan canopy an island of racial civility uh, located in a sea of segregation. And I talk about that and I talk about 
the ways in which um, uh, under the canopy, there are essentially two kinds of people. There are people who are cosmopolitan, who uh, tend to appreciate all kinds of people. And there are ethnocentric people who basically are pretty tribal and you can't even be a person unless you look like me, so to speak, if you're sure. in that yeah. orientation. And sometimes these orientations exist, uh, it coexists in the same person and people do code switch from one to the other, depending on what, what the situation uh, seems to demand. And you might remember the Starbucks incident that we uh, uh, yes. experienced in Philadelphia in 2018, when these two black men went to a Starbucks to meet a friend and they, they didn't buy anything, just sat and waited, waited for him and uh, had the audacity to ask the barista for the bathroom uh, code and she asked them if they were going to purchase anything. And they said, no, we're waiting for a friend. And as she uh, called the police on them. And within minutes, the police were there and arrested these two black men for um, essentially being black in Starbucks. And this right. made nation, nationwide news, so to speak. But the uh, canopy there, uh, right in Rittenhouse Square, had been had been rented by this this experience you see mm -hmm. and um, while you do have a situation where people get along there are all kinds of people and all that you have the 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 cosmos you have the ethnos you have all kinds of people getting on you do have these moments of acute disrespect that uh, that black people run into in part because of the association of black people with the so-called iconic ghetto even if they're in these canopy-like spaces, which are so positive as you were. And when that happens, um, it, 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 it sort of manifests as the, as the color line. And so people can then see that this is the color line, the moment of acute disrespect based on, based on blackness. And it's also true that, that, that you don't have to be black to run into this kind of moment of acute disrespect based on your particularity. You can be gay, you can be a woman, you can be Jewish, you can be Asian, you can be Muslim, and you right. can have moments of acute disrespect based on your particularity. And black people oftentimes feel it uh, most acutely in part because the iconic ghetto is such a prominent feature of the urban environment, you see, and the mm -hmm. stereotypes that people make about the iconic ghetto are implicated in this uh, moment of acute disrespect that black people run into from time to time. This is all kind of laid out in my book, Black and White Space. It's also laid out in the book, The Cosmopolitan Canopy, Race and Civility in Everyday Life. I, I had never heard of an ethnographer before I met you. And I just think that it is a, it is a, a fascinating subcategory of sociology to really study the the things that that certain ethnic groups have in common and how that interacts with society at large and and i thank you for doing this work this is updated perfectly for the times this information i think this book needed to come out now so well well done well my work began as a as a as a graduate student, I started my work as a as a graduate student at the University of Chicago many years ago, and um, I studied uh, 
for my dissertation, uh, Black Street Corner Men. I spent three years on one street corner on the south side of Chicago studying um, this, this, this space. And it became my first book, A Place on the Corner. And essentially, it deals with the uh, identity um, that these men express every day, uh, status and identity that they express in face-to-face -face interaction. It's a, it's a point of social organization within their settings, that kind of thing. But you learn about uh, the street corner and even the issues that, that I write about uh, today in black and white space, you know, are kind of adumbrated in that, in that first work. And when I uh, finished that work, um, I began uh, studying uh, gentrification in Philadelphia in a racially mixed neighborhood. And that resulted in my book, Streetwise, which uh, to some extent built on issues that I learned about and discovered in the first book. And after I finished uh, Streetwise, my next book was Code of the Street, which uh, was all about why so many inner city young people uh, are violent and uh, on occasion. And um, uh, I talk about the ways in which the police have abdicated responsibility in the community and people are on their own and how they have to deal with issues by having street credibility and that kind of thing. But street credibility is high maintenance. And oftentimes there are casualties, you see. And that's where the violence comes in. And from that, I move on to the Canopy book, and uh, which is about that island of racial civility uh, in a sea of segregation. And from that book, the next book was Black and White Space. And each of these books um, builds on the previous one. And so this is a body of work over the past uh, half century that uh, renders or gives a, a sense of how the urban environment so yeah, this is, and each each work builds on the previous one, as I say. So this is uh, my body my body of work here. And it's it's important work, and it's fascinating work, and and I I think that a lot more people need to be exposed to it because it it provides a glimpse into areas of society a lot of people don't just don't even think about they they don't think about especially historical perspectives of how we get where we are and societal influences of how certain groups get to where they are so thank you so much for coming back on my show dr elijah anderson this book is black and white space the enduring impact of color in everyday life thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for having me and for Cultural Controversy, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.